Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So today is episode 195, and I really, really, really enjoy listening to this episode and listening back because there were so many things to come out of it from myself, and the, the, the discussion was one of those discussions that I know I sent over questions and stuff beforehand, but it was one of those questions that was free-flowing. There was stuff coming up into my head, and I was kind of looking from a client point of view and how would it impact someone and then I sent the message over to Dallas who's one of the other coaches that works for myself and we talk about an awful lot of things so today's guest is the amazing Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe so Dr. Robin is a multi-award winning psychology and education instructor who specializes in resiliency navigating stress change leadership and personal wellness in the workplace so she's been described as a transformational engaging and thought-provoking uh kind of keynote speaker and she provides practical strategies grounded in global research and case studies that help foster resiliency within others and within ourselves and robin is available for consultation uh, so definitely give her a shout if you're into that and then she's released an amazing new book and it, she's the author of an incredible book called calm within the storm a pathway to resiliency and some of the things that we kind of talk about are something that i think is going to help an awful lot of especially when things are kind of opening back up and a lot of things are kind of changing and a lot of things are a lot of people are realizing that with other things open a book back up and COVID and stuff in relation to stress and burnout i know this is something that i've really really struggled with myself the whole thing of empathy and how there's scarcity of that and scarcity of a lot of things we talk about different types of resiliency and we talk about what is resiliency we talk about toxic positivity we talk about what is mastery and what mastery is to her. We talk about negative self-talk is learned. And we talk about self-entitlement and how a few people are going to like self-entitlement is a thing that I don't think a lot of people realize that they're actually saying these things to themselves. And it really, really hit home when we started talking about the self-entitlement thing in particular. And I think this episode is going to make people realize a lot of things and how they, how they think about things. But if you are looking for someone to kind of give a follow to looking for some a book to read i would highly encourage you guys to read calm within the storm a pathway to resiliency all the show notes all the links for robin's social media her website her book are on the write-up so guys i hope you enjoy the episode with dr robin hanley defoe robin thank you so much for coming on how are we doing excellent today thanks for having me Rob, I'm going to get you to give a bit of a brief background for, I know I gave you a little brief, brief background before we kind of came on, uh, on air and stuff like that. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a snippet into yourself and the amazing book that you just released as well? Absolutely. So uh, first of all, my name is Robin. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm joining you today from a, villa, um, a community just outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, the land actually that I live upon and the land I'm joining you from is actually land of the Anishinaabe First Persons of Mississauga. And I'm a settler in Canada. This is originally Indigenous lands. And I am very grateful that I am able to live in Canada and raise our family and work and learn and do all of the great things that we can do in our country coast to coast to coast. But it's important to recognize I'm a settler. Now, what I find myself doing here is I view myself as a scholar, a researcher, a speaker, author, and I'm really curious about all things resiliency and wellness. So I've been working in the academy in a university setting for 13 years, doing research around teaching and learning and how do we support people learning new behaviors, new ideas about resiliency and wellness. 
And I also have, as you said, released a new book called Calm Within the Storm. It is a bit of a, a reckoning, so to speak, for things about resiliency. It really differentiates itself, I think, from other work right now in resiliency. And I'm very excited for that to be making its way out in the world. And can you explain what exactly resiliency is? Because I know in a lot of different elements and stuff like that, there's a lot of elements to resiliency. But can you give like a quick stop definition of what resiliency is? Resiliency, in my opinion, is the capacity to be able to navigate the hard parts of our lives and keep showing up. So for me, it's not always just about like bouncing back or taking the hit and still moving on. It's the idea about how we actually show up after we've experienced adversity and difficulty. So it's this idea about perseverance, the idea about that discipline, motivation, that capacity to keep showing up and working towards our goals. It's never more apt than what has happened in the last 18 months, basically. That is the truth. Yes, we have been called on a global level to create a collective level of resiliency to be trying to navigate the current health issues. As well as in North America, we've also faced a very needed racial reckoning. Uh, there's been lots of social justice issues at foot. So yes, resiliency is some um, a skill set that we really need to be practicing and cultivating and fostering right now. You recently did an article in Psychology Today. Um, on kind of stress, burnout, fatigue. And I know they're kind of these things that some people can thrive upon. That's kind of like a badge of honor that a lot of us would wear saying, oh, how many hours are you working? What are you getting paid? All this kind of stuff. And one of the things that you kind of brought into that article was an interesting concept of empathy. And some people can see empathy as one of these buzzwords or hippie words. And it's kind of like, it can be disregarded. Why do people think of empathy as kind of like a finite resource? And why do we struggle with it so much? Yeah, that's a really great question. And yes, so one of the things I talked about in that article was this idea that we have obviously a lot of stress. And really the reality though is stress isn't what does harm to us, our bodies, emotionally, physically, psychologically, even spiritually. It's not stress. We actually need stress in our lives. It's when we cross this threshold into what we define as distress. And distress is when the stress actually starts depleting us versus giving us energy. So we know usually when there's things kind of that are challenging us on the horizon, it motivates us, it gives us good focus, we can work with that stress and it actually enhances performance and behavior. But the reality is we now are seeing folks in high record numbers that are stuck in that distress. And that distress is what leads to burnout. That distress is what leads to compassion fatigue. And what's interesting is we can't hate ourselves healthy, right? We can't like force ourselves to like be less stressed or not navigate that the those parts. And what we see though, when we try to get through it, the remedy or the antidote to burnout, compassion, fatigue is that idea of empathy. And what's interesting, I think many of us have been groomed or conditioned to believe that we just have to get harder, tougher, angrier even, and that's how you push through these walls but it's the opposite that we see in the research. We actually have to be kinder to ourselves. We need to give ourselves you know, some light work. We need to give ourselves that understanding that we have to be compassionate with ourselves first. And again, there's this idea that we'll make people soft or you know, we won't get the best out of people if we allow that vulnerability to say, you know what, this is too much, this is too big, it's too heavy, I need to recover. 
But what we see long game, when we look long term onto the horizon, we actually know when we practice empathy for ourselves and for others, we get back faster. We actually can get back in the race and the the damage we do doesn't go on for decades. Uh, And sometimes that's what happens. People just try to white knuckle or, you know, find a, a way to get through it that doesn't actually do any form of recovery or repair, which what we need. Why do people, why do so many people struggle with it though? Because like it's like compassion, empathy, all those words, uh, like they've been around for a very long time, but I think it's only kind of coming now with the likes of your book and the power of now and those kind of type of books and stuff that a lot of people, it's kind of only coming to the fore. Like they're not new strategies. Like if you look at the daily stoic and stuff or stoicism and all that kind of stuff, Aristotle, it's been back since then, but why is it only coming to the fore now? I really think that it's that we're we're at this kind of impasse where we know what we're currently doing isn't working, right? Like we're not we we should be healthy um, healthier, but we're not healthier. We should be happier, but we're not happier. And we very much, I believe, where that's coming from is that again we've been growing up in these environments, even here in North America, and, and for you across the ocean with this scarcity, right? This scarcity mindset that there's not enough to go around, there's not enough time, there's not enough energy, and so we just have to like. Like, you know, we're just, we're really just struggling. We're just grabbing and we're missing often versus this notion of, of having sufficiency. And when we start working with sufficiency, we start to realize that, you know what, gratefulness matters, compassion, these kind of ideas that are often thought of as soft skills or weaknesses are actually these capacities where we can be extraordinary when we start doing things wholehearted. But I think the reason why people don't do it is because there's a lot of myth. There's a lot of stereotypes associated about people who talk about their feelings or their emotions or people that are like in tuned with those areas of their lives. What's fascinating though, is the people who are in tuned with those areas of their lives, they experience a level of excellence that unless you start to explore those other realms, we'll never actually be able to feel as if we are doing the good work. Because our the purpose comes from there. The the idea of our personalities matching. So we have our personalities and our purpose and this greater sense of service comes out, which is where we see in the research, people find true joy. They live the good life when they do both parts. And is kind of like the element of kind of like the residency stuff. Is it kind of are you like are you like is it like kind of like Maybelline? Are you born with it or is it kind of developed <laughs> is it developed over time? Yeah, I am a huge advocate that it is absolutely something that is developed over time. And I think for what we sometimes refer to as like biological resiliency in terms of you know kind of our thresholds for certain illnesses or diseases, like yes, there's obviously a biological component to it. But when we're thinking about the resiliency that we need to like meet our goals and to build systems in our lives so we can live a good life, we can show up in a way that's wholehearted. That's that resiliency that can be learned, cultivated. And what the research shows that the number one way we can promote that and foster it is actually through modeling. It's actually being able to look to people who have walked those paths before us and learn from them to say, okay, how did you do it? It's that sharing that, that collective wisdom and that knowledge is really how we can model and show the next generation how to do the hard parts of their lives. Are people afraid to share that knowledge though in the case of being kind of potentially overtaken? So if you say, look at someone who say like uh, someone like say Warren Buffett is successful at business. Yeah. 
but he shares a lot of his secrets. And so with Charlie Munger, who was his number two and stuff, and would share, share his book and like share the tips. But then you look at someone else who may not be willing to share that information. Are they afraid that they're kind of going to get overlapped and forgotten if they do? 100%. Yeah. And I think that very much goes right back to that idea of scarcity, right? That there's this idea, there's not enough to go around or somebody's going to take your idea and they're going to do it, you know, bigger or better, or they'll profit for, or they'll have greater success. And if we live in that place of never having enough, never being able to get our footing, that's what leads to this, like this deep sense of not being enough or chasing or, feeling it's against kind of like us versus the world and it doesn't have to be that way and what's interesting even that idea around scarcity just think when people wake up the first thing they say is you know didn't get enough sleep last night right don't have enough time to get all these things done don't have time to fit in a workout don't have time to you know prepare my meals or they just constantly live in this place of not enough and that creates that that selfish piece of of not thinking about the sharing and what's amazing is you can have a really great idea and you you know some people will hoard that great idea but when you share it and you can build knowledge clusters and people can come together to move a knowledge community forward that's where we get the greatest benefits that's where we're going to actually see some pretty amazing change capacity when we work collectively you mentioned there the scarcity of time because i think that's the one i think that if i had hair that would be the thing that like i think that's probably pulled out my hair when people say i don't have time i think it's the one pet peeve that i have Obviously, writing a book takes a massive amount of resiliency. It takes a massive amount of time and effort. How did you come over the whole scarcity element of time when you're writing the book? And what, yeah, well, what, I think one what of the, tips did you have? Yeah, so thank you. I think one of the bright blessings of, of being somebody who has multiple um, projects on the go, I think I, I always give uh, thanks to our children. We have three teenagers, and they have taught me how to be very strategic with my time. So I think there is this kind of belief that we have to always be multitasking, right? And one of the things that I've learned, especially being a parent, is I can do a much better job when I'm monotasking, but I make sure that I work on a very tight system. So for example, when I'm with my kids, I'm 100% dialed in and that's what I'm doing when I'm with my kids. When I move over to go into that writing phase where I have to get some writing done, I'm 100% dialed in focused on that task. I don't try to multitask many areas in my lives. I try to do a lot of monotasking and compartmentalizing where it's like, okay, now this is the time that I'm going to do this. And that's why I'm such a big advocate actually about having systems versus goals Because I think with goals, we might achieve it once or twice, right? We might hit this mark and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, great. I achieved my goal. So now I'm good. But if we build systems where this is what we do, this is what we're prioritizing. This is what's in line with my values. And I want to do this for this particular season of my life. We're much more um, successful, I believe, in being able to achieve the outcomes that we're hoping to achieve. And in my case, it was trying to get that book put out last year. So I very much compartmentalized. I had writing windows. One of my favorite writing windows, I was doing a ton of traveling with work. And one of my favorite writing windows were hotels in the evening, you know, sitting in airports. I was able to get a lot of the writing in those little windows because I wasn't also trying to answer email. I wasn't also trying to answer other things. And I often let folks know that I use, like, for example, even like um, my physical activity, I use a lot of that time to do a lot of the thinking, knowing 
I will have a writing window. And when I sit down, I'm ready to write because I've already done a ton of thinking while I'm, you know, running on the treadmill or going for a walk with the dogs. And then when I sit down, then I can write. It's a huge, like, there's a lot of overlap what you're saying there about kind of like honing in on when you ha- you know you have the error, so it must be good with the, with the likes of Cal Newport and Deep Work yes, and that yes. side of things. Yeah, so there's a lot of elements of that, and like on the go or I'm in the airport, I have an error, let's get it done. And then one of the, the, the different types of deep work that he talks about. In relation to kind of the resiliency elements of things, are there different types? And if so, like what, what, what are the, the various different types? Yeah. So I think what's really fascinating is each and every one of us, we have like resiliency is is actually quite fluid. There's going to be some areas in our lives that we are so resilient. We've had lots of good experience practicing getting through challenges, maybe in that physical resiliency, right? That idea of like, you know, recovery, healing, whether it be a performance athlete or what it is, there's that kind of physical resiliency. There's also that, I also talk about this idea of our emotional resiliency, how we navigate our thoughts and our feelings and that whole inner world. We also be, we, we think about that a lot. And the area that I really love to share with people where often we talk about is not just the idea of like, what it is, you know, what is resiliency? Where, where, what does it look like? But really, where does it come from? And if we're not born with it, where, where are these opportunities to be able to build it? And in my work, I often talk about there's five pillars. And the first one is a sense of belonging. It is so important that each and every one of us have a home team. We need to have a home team to be able to get through the difficult seasons of our lives. And our home team, it might be our chosen family, it could be our biological family, it could be teammates, could be our identity with our professions. You need to have that place where you feel as though you have a voice at the table, that this is you, the real you, and people accept you. What happens though, I think often is people spend so much of their time trying to fit in, they forget what it feels like to actually belong to something. And what I really encourage people is to think about where are those key areas where you belong, because that will create what we call psychological safety. And that is the foundation for all of the other practices and behaviors that are associated with resiliency. It needs to come from that deep place of trust that you know, come what may, you're going to be able to figure it out. You're going to be able to make that next right decision. How hard is it to get to that point, though? Because an awful lot of people don't want to dig because it's it's yeah. too uncomfortable. How how like how hard can it be? Like, it, like I know from my point of view, when I had my own mental health issues and stuff, I didn't want to dig because I just yeah. knew it was like, and then a volcano erupted. Yeah. But how? how can we go to that, that kind of, that, that, that kind of sense of kind of belonging? Because mm-hmm. some people will like, as you mentioned, you have like a football team or as your family or friends, but some yes. people may not have that as well. So how do you kind of get around that element of that non-element of belonging, if you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. You're asking a great question. And, and it comes down to the, it comes down to picking your heart. So yeah. not doing the work is hard. Doing the work is hard. So you have to pick what hard you're willing to work with. And then we embrace the discomfort. We learn to do the work. Now we can spend decades of our lives not doing the work and we'll feel the consequence of it. And it's going to be very challenging. There's going to be often that tipping point though, when we say there must be another way, or we realize that this isn't how we want the next season of our lives or the next decade of our lives. And then we actually have to start doing the work. And what I have to encourage persons and I invite them to think about is, you know, you know, like in your heart, 
you will know that you need to do some work. You're going to know that there's some key areas and you can ignore them for a real long time, but they're going to always keep popping up. And at first, I think they're quiet little rumblings in our lives. And then all of a sudden you get what you just described, that volcano where you, you can't ignore it. And my invitation is to find a trusted person that you could talk to. And if that's a, a professional, a therapist, or even a doctor or someone like you, you, we can't do this alone. We're not meant to do this alone. So starting that progress towards getting, whether it be that support or that help or that guidance on how do I do these work, like that work that I need to do. Now, I love what you said about the fact that like when you were experiencing your circumstances, you didn't even want to dig deep because you didn't know how deep it could go, right? Like you didn't know what was under there. And I get that. And one of the things I hear so often is people say, you know, doc, I don't want to talk to a psychologist or a therapist or a social worker um, because I don't know what they're going to find. Well, you know, we're not mind readers. We don't find things. And what I just think is so amazing about the human condition is that we're hardwired to heal. We are hardwired. Our bodies repair, our emotional health can repair, and you're only going to face what you can, what you can handle. And what's amazing is that all of a sudden, if too much starts to surface and too much our bodies naturally will start to go into shock, right? Like our bodies are, are meant to protect ourselves. So that's why it's important to do it with a trusted person, but also honor the fact that your, your body knows how to get through this and we're meant to heal. We're meant to recover and it's scary, but I think it's a lot scarier. The cost of inaction is way scarier than never getting help. I think that's a, a, an amazing sentiment that it's scarier to like almost stay where you are. And I kind of say like maths is hard, but getting kind of change is uncomfortable. Maths is hard, change is uncomfortable. Like you can either stay where you are, where you're unhappy potentially now anyway, or else you can try to resolve something. It doesn't have to be the world and everything. Everyone wants everything done now, left, right, and center, like ASAP. We live in like, you can find your wife or your husband or whatever it may be on one of the apps by a click of a button. We live on dopamine hits all day. like So yes. it's important that it will take time. But if you're willing to put in the time, it kind of gives, it creates that time for you in the direction you want to go. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's yeah, a, that's yeah, uh, it's amazing. Um, Thank you. Does, res- does resiliency depend on the situation? That's uh, a, oh, such a good question. Um, it does in the sense that Depends on the situation, but it also depends where you are when you're facing that situation. And what I mean by that is if you are depleted, tired, even if you're just really overwhelmed, you're not going to have as much capacity for resiliency versus if you're taking care of yourself. And that's what I often talk to persons about. And what really differentiates my work from other persons on resiliency is that most scholars are interested in that like big, huge catastrophe, right? Big, huge thing happens, loss, rejection, um, you know, whatever that is you're navigating. And that's what a lot of people study. How do you bounce back after an end of a relationship or losing your job or losing your health? Like, how do you bounce back from it? What I'm really curious about is what do we do every single day that positions us so when we do get walloped, we're able to recover, that we're able to because we have systems in place where we have the relationships that we need. So that way, when we do get walloped, which we know is inevitable, right? If you have a life, it means you're going to have messy parts. You're going to have heart aches and setbacks. 
How do we make sure that you're prepared that when that happens, you're going to be able to move through it in a way that keeps you okay. And ultimately that's the goal of resiliency. It is not excellence. It's not top echelon performance. It's not, you know, top shelf all the time. It's that you have this deep, steadfast confidence in yourself that you know that you will be able to figure it out, that no matter what happens, you're going to find a way to make the next right decision. Do you feel as kind of like as humans that we kind of almost paint a picture that everything's going to go right all the time? And then when things kind of get in the way or something doesn't go in that straight line of progress that we expect that we almost don't know how to deal with it and we kind of almost lie to ourselves to, to kind of get us out of it? hundred percent. There's definitely this toxic positivity yeah. that's happening. And it's amazing because like I write about hope and I'm a huge advocate of staying hope filled and living in hope with others, which is not the same thing as toxic toxic, you know, that toxic positivity where we say like everything is like rainbows and butterflies yeah. and unicorns um, because you know what? Some things do suck. Some things are hard. And I think one of the contributing factors to that is that we live in this culture where we expect ourselves to be good the first time we try things. The first time we do it, if we're not great at it, or somebody says, oh, you're a natural, then we get really um, nervous. We don't do it again. Or we're, we get really, um, we start to develop shame or we do a lot of what we call social comparison, right? It's like, if you go to a driving range and let's say you're golfing, you go to a driving range, Rarely are we actually looking at our own ball, our own swing, our own yeah. performance. You're Watching literally looking else. at everyone else. And if you saw somebody who looked totally decked out in like, let's say they were sponsored and they were in all their gear, or you saw somebody down the row who was like a toddler or a kid, you're going to go stand beside the young kid because you don't want to be compared to the person who's decked out in all the golf gear, right? Like we do things even on a subconscious level where we never don't want to look like we're really good at it. And I think that's what contributes to a lot of people having this kind of idea that, you know, things are supposed to be great and smooth. And I think social media also contributes to that by these Absolutely. constant highlight reels of look how, look how good I am at this. And we need to give ourselves permission to not be very good at things the first time we try them, maybe even not good the second or third time we try them. We actually have to change what the learning and development curve is actually what that's all about. Because learning and growth is meant to be disruptive. You're not supposed to have mastery at it yet. It's something we work towards. And um what would you define as mastery? Because I know sometimes you have like the 10,000 hour rule or whatever it may be for certain, there's many books that kind of talk about that, but what is mastery for you? So for me, I think it's, it's actually quite personal. So it's what, what is your, what is your full capacity? And, you know, so to me, that's what mastery will look like for that person. So for example, you know, um, you know, let's say somebody enjoys running, right. Your, your mastery isn't doing the, you know, four minute mile. Like that's not what I'm signing up for. I'm doing it that I can consistently and routinely in a sustainable way engage in this practice and it contributes in a meaningful way to my life. Then I know I've hit mastery in that. That's something that I, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, but I also recognize the value it brings or the value I can use to share it with others by me being able to do it. And I think what's fascinating is we often don't talk about it this way, but I believe that we all have skills that we learn and some of us have talent, but we also have gifts. 
And I think that the mastery is really starting to understand what is the skill, the talent, and what gift. And when you identify your gifts, your signature strengths, we call them in research, how do you share them with others? And that's when we start to experience mastery. When we can share it with others, we feel energized, essential, authentic, and we can do the good work. I love that. I really do love that. The importance of sharing, because you've spoken about sharing twice there, about yeah. kind of like other people imparting their wisdom onto you, and then yeah. you imparting your wisdom. It's kind of that circle, uh, that circle of trust that you, you've kind of alluded to. One of the things that kind of a lot of people do struggle to do is, or struggle to cope with, should I say, is kind of like pushing one's thoughts and feelings. And uh, like, does that pr- promote resilience, or will it kind of like discourage resilience in relation to kind of pushing those thoughts and things away? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I'm sure you've probably heard this before. It's like, you know, um, you know, kids are resilient or going through hard times will make you stronger, yeah. right? I'm sure you've probably heard that belief before. Um, the reality is that hard times don't make us stronger. Learning from the hard time, doing the work, healing from the hard time, that's what actually makes us resilient because the idea is then we know how to make the next right move. If you don't heal from it, if you don't grow from it, if you don't debrief it or unpack it, that experience won't make you stronger. You're likely to do the same behavior and make the same mistakes. And one of the things I often use with our kids, and as I said, we had three teenage, we have three teenagers. I always talk to them about like, don't waste a mistake. Like if you've made a mistake, you want to unpack it, debrief it, explore it, because that's when you're going to learn where your gaps are. And you need to know what your gaps are because none of us None of us can do this without being in that state of learning. Um, The whole idea is that we're growing and we're always evolving. And the greatest competition has to be with ourselves. You know, am I showing up for myself? Am I contributing? Am I living the best life, the good life for me? So that way it positions me to be of service to others, which some write about as the, the, the kind of the top in terms of what we're all striving for. If we think about how do we actualize? And how do we kind of get away from the whole thing of not beating ourselves up? Because that's where a lot of people would end up doing it. If they don't succeed once, as, you, as you've spoken about, especially with golf, I find it the most frustrating game in the world. <laughs> as do I, yeah. That's just like even Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy will drive a left, right and center yeah. on the golf course. I'm like, well, what's the point then? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think where this really comes down to is is our self-talk. It's how, it's how we talk to ourselves. It's how we frame uh, mistakes. It's how we frame setbacks. You know, often we, you know, talk about this idea where it's like, you know, as soon as you make a mistake, the first thing we say to ourselves, you know, is we name call ourselves. We'll be like, we're stupid or what the hell, or I should have been better. We should really all over ourselves, right? Like I should have known this, or I should have done that. And we kind of beat ourselves up that way. But what's interesting is that is a learned behavior. Okay. Negative self-talk self, um, you know, you know, behavior that really doesn't motivate us that we bring into our worlds that's learned. No baby comes into the world being like, man, you know, I should do something about these thighs, right? Like all of this is learned conversations we have with ourselves. So if, if it's learned, the really cool thing is then we can unlearn it. We can figure out different ways, challenge some of those negative self-talk ideas. And when we start to ally up with our thoughts, give our thoughts and our experiences a safe place to land in our minds, it's extraordinary the transformation that can happen. And again, we often talk about this idea of 
conditioning in ourselves to learn how to, to respond to what's going on versus that reaction, right? The reaction is that voice in our head that's been telling us since we're younger, we're not good enough or we're not strong enough, fast enough, smart enough. But when we actually can create some spaciousness and we actually say, wow, okay, so maybe that didn't go how I wanted it to, but you know what? I'm doing the best I can with the tools that I have today. I'm doing, you know, when we start to reframe some of that negative self-talk, it can be pretty extraordinary. I love the fact that you brought it up that it's kind of, it's a learned trait. And I think oh, particularly huge. for someone who kind of works with many people who are trying to lose weight. Um, if you're in an environment that's unconstructive to what you're trying to do, where people are judging you for what you're eating or people are judging you for, oh, I've messed up my diet or whatever it may be. And that's something that your parents have said or your grandparents have said around you. That's the way you're going to phrase things to yourself. And, and I think what a lot of people are realizing is whatever they're saying now, and if they have kids, they're going to say it around them and they don't want their kids to pick up on those. So I think a lot of people are being more present. It's just having the right tools to actually use to go down the direction. In relation to uh, positive psychology and resilience, is there a link between the two? I believe so, yes. So very much when we think about um, positive psychology or, or humanistic psychology, it really kind of came out of this landscape where we were trying to move away from like the medical model of what's wrong with us into this this new realm of what's possible. So there is this place where positive psychology works in alignment and resiliency in this idea of what is possible does very much come from, from that. That's its origin stories, right? Transitioning from what's wrong with us to what can we do about it, moving into a more developmental model. And what I think is very important is that we set up our, and this ties to what you just said, we need to set up our environments where resiliency can flourish. We need to set up our mental and our, our personal, you know, our personal ecosystems in a place where resiliency is part of the very fabric of our lives, which gives ourselves that spaciousness, that permission that we don't need perfection. What we really need is to be present, be present with your decisions, be present with their consequences, be present with where we're going from here versus trying to achieve this idea of perfection. Um, there's really, you know, that I think really derails a lot of people's good intention is the fact that if I can't do it perfectly the first time, or if I don't do it hundred percent right, it's not worth it. Um, but, you know, and I know you probably are so familiar with so many of the examples, analogies where it's like, you know, the, you know, we, we self-sabotage. Uh, yeah. in a pretty extraordinary way. And an interesting phenomena that we've actually seen to kind of tie back into what we're observing right now with the COVID, kind of the post-COVID landscape is we saw obviously a lot of self-sabotaging behavior, but we also saw another behavior that was really interesting. And this was this behavior called self-entitlement. And self-entitlement, it wasn't something that we was that was really on our radar before COVID, and what self-entitlement is this kind of, it's like a mental trap people get into where they say things like, you know what, I worked so hard today, right? I did so well today. You know what? I deserve to have that, that, that treat or that reward. Or it's like, you know what? I have the most difficult children. So you know what? I'm totally going to have that second bottle of wine, right? Where all of a sudden they start to justify some maladaptive behavior based on all the good that they yeah. do in their life. 
And that was something that we, we didn't see. Uh, we were surprised to see it coming out where we realized that, you know, not only is this kind of self-sabotaging, but they're doing it from this place where they feel as though it's somehow bringing balance, right? It's this idea, I do so much good here. So, you know what, I'm going to do this instead, which we were quite surprised because we saw it even in persons, um, you know, one particular group we saw it really high in was uh, in our medical community where here they were, these long hours, these wild shifts, saving lives, being on the front line, and then they get windows of recovery and they're, you know, they're binging, they're, they're taking in a lot of, you know, taking in just a lot that's actually doing harm to their bodies as a reward for the good that they were doing in the, in the medical community. So it was pretty startling to see that. I think a lot of people will probably, that will, that will hit home for an awful lot of people yeah. listening to this in relation to that kind of like self-sabotage element because that is something that I work with an awful lot of my clients on and the yeah. perfectionist element. And I compare, compare perfectionism to my hairline. It doesn't really exist. <laughs> I like that. Or the self-entitlement element of it that because I've done this, I deserve this. Mm-hmm. But it's like, but if you deserve this, well, why not do, you, do not to deserve to live the world that you want to? That's mm-hmm. another element that you could bring back to it as well. Yeah. The... One of the big words that kind of comes around, you know, one of my colleagues, Stephen, who who um, works for me, he talks about grit mm. um, an awful lot. Are grit and resilience the same thing? So I think of them a little bit differently. Um, I think grit is connected to this, I would say, a different perspective on resiliency that's looking at more hardiness or, you know, that resourcefulness. Are we going to find a way to push through kind of at whatever the cost, right? That we have to like, you know, it's, it's kind of the dig deeper, right? Like dig deep, figure it out, crawl your way through it. When I think about resiliency, I think what's fascinating is what we see where people get the best traction with resiliency is more of a blended model where, you know what, there's some days where you're going to actually have to just embrace the discomfort and do the best you can push through it. But then there's other days where you might actually have to do a little bit less, right? It's not doing more all the time or pushing or white knuckling. It's like, okay, you know what? No, I actually need to taper off a little bit, right? I just have to settle down, regroup, reground, and then try again. So I think about resiliency as that relationship of honoring the fact that some days you're going to have more energy and space and capacity, but then a resilient person will say, you know what, today, I don't have that today. So I have to find a new strategy and the new strategy might be, you know what, I'm going to curl up with a book and I'm going to just not, not face that today because I know I'm going to have to take some time to regroup, recalibrate, refresh, and then I'll try again tomorrow. That to me is a resilient person versus that person who just keeps banging their head, you know, trying to do the exact same thing every day because they're quote gritty. But if you're not getting the success, if you're not growing, if you're not moving forward, then I think that could actually be harmful. I love that idea of um, it's okay to take a chill day because, oh, I think, 100%. because I know in fitness, it's kind of like, no, you need to hustle more and business you need to hustle more. But in fairness, you can't pour from an empty cup. You not need to take those days. Your body tells you, your body gives you the feedback. Yeah. And if you're not listening to that feedback, that volcano will erupt again. 100%. And I also, I love when you actually like, I, I love for me, I enjoy running. That's like in the mornings, it's my way of kind of, I do it strictly to clear my head. The only way I can kind of push through some of that mental fog is to get a run in. And what's interesting is I, I, I would just run every morning if I could, but I've learned with my body as a 42 year old, I'm learning that my body doesn't quite, my mind likes to run every day, but my body doesn't. Yeah. And what I like to do is when I do have that day, 
day, I do one active recovery day. And what I always love is the first run after an active recovery day where it feels effortless again. And it's like, I can grind it out without taking breaks. But when I do take a break, my body rewards it, right? My body recovers, it's renourished, it's ready to go. And that first workout after a day of rest is a great workout day, right? So it's honoring your body, sending you the cues that this is what it needs. Yeah. And I think, like, I think people realize, don't realize that when they're actually, they actually get fitter through rest because their body, their muscles, their organs and stuff will actually recover. So it'll give them the opportunity to actually go a little bit better the next day. One of the things that kind of from the research prepping for, for our chat and stuff was a paper from like 1979 by Kobasa. I know mm. I had to double check the name yes, before yeah, we came on. Uh, can resiliency offer protection from stress-induced illness? Because this is one that's close to my heart, stress-induced yeah. illness. So I wanted to ask this one. Can resiliency offer protection? Yes, I would say 100%. And interesting, because that research is coming from 79, but what research we would use to augment that as to why we're saying yes in 2021 definitely would be based on Dr. Kelly McGonigal's research. Yeah. And Dr. McKenna McGonigal, she's the author of The, the Upside Will of Stress. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that research would really lend evidence that it does. And I think just what's so fascinating is it's our relationship with stress, which contributes or creates that buffer effect for stress-related illnesses. So 100%. And it's interesting because if you took a whole, like, imagine like all of those illnesses that people are experiencing and you looked at the symptomology, stress is related to virtually all of them. Um, and what's interesting is we're even seeing that now with our, our teenagers, we're seeing it with children. We're seeing record numbers of children experiencing anxiety and other types of issues. And it's, you know, stress and our relationship with their nervous system really contributes to a lot of those challenges. So wholeheartedly, yes, resiliency is so important. And, and I think it would be a it would be a service that we could offer to our children and to teenagers to to change that conversation about stress isn't just something that we have to white knuckle or push away it's something that we need to understand because when you work with your stress it changes our our future trajectory on what our health implications are going to be What's the last question is what's the biggest myth that you think that's out there towards resiliency Oh, just one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think think it's this idea that, yeah, I think it's the idea that you're either born resilient or you're not. And I'll hear people say often to me, they're like, you know what, doc, I'm not resilient. And it's like each and every one of us have the capacity to get through. And what I often let persons understand is that when we start to think that we're not resilient, it's this idea that we get overwhelmed and we're stuck with what we call the anticipatory anxiety. And the anticipatory anxiety, worrying about the future things happening is way worse than the actual thing happening. And when you face that difficult season, that horrible, no good, rotten setback, whatever it is, in the moment, if you pause, you're going to realize that you're, you're, you're working it out. You're figuring it out. You're surviving. You're fight, like you're able to cope. And so often people think that they're like, oh, I could never survive that. Or, oh, I wouldn't be able to navigate that. Or my life would be over if. What I really hope people realize is that we are so much stronger than we think we are. We're hardwired for struggle, which means when we face a struggle, we are going to figure it out. That's what we do. And we do it very well. 
I love that. Like we will figure it out. Like if you think of someone who's like a first time mother or sometimes first time parent, they've no idea what they're doing. Or majority, vast majority of them have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. And then this little nipper comes along and then you kind of figure it out. It's first day in the job. You've no idea what you're doing. We always get through something. We just, we, we adapt the situation and we, we may fall or whatever maybe, but we do get through things. Yeah. Uh, where can people find out about the incredible book, Calm Within the Storm, A Pathway to Resiliency? Uh, thank you. So um, you can, it's actually available anywhere. So you're welcome to check it out that way. All the information about it is also on my website, which is just robinhd.ca. I can share that free for the show notes. Um, but yeah, so please keep these conversations going. I welcome community building on social media. So please feel free to check that out as well. And we, we keep these conversations and these ideas going every day. So I hope to see some of your listeners there soon. Amazing. So Robin, thank you so much for that amazing chat. I could have chatted to you for ages and the book's incredible, guys. So I'll put all the the links to where to get the book. I'll put the links to the website. And if you want to pop uh, Dr. Robin a, a DM or even a message, uh, pop her a message. But Robin, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Take good care and all the best. Thank you.